David Emblidge is an associate professor at Emerson College in Boston in the graduate program in publishing. He is writing a narrative history of the American bookstore. Emblidge serves on the editorial board of Logos, on the advisory committee of the International Journal of the Book, and was the program organizer for that conference at Emerson College in October of 2006. As an acquisitions editor, he has worked for Harvard and Cambridge University Presses. He founded the trade book company Berkshire House, sold to W.W. Norton, and he edited My Day, the best of Eleanor Roosevelt's acclaimed newspaper columns, 1936 to 1962, among other publications. His last in-house publishing position was editor-in-chief at Mountaineers Books, Seattle, and he offered publishing workshops for academic and trade book writers. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. So you are writing a narrative history of the American bookstore. What exactly is a narrative history? Well, I've been indulging myself for some years in telling and retelling stories about bookstores and booksellers. I wouldn't want to claim that I will be able to um, cover the entirety of the history of the bookstore in, 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 in America. That's, that's a, a giant project which would require many more years than I have left and many more dollars than I've ever had available to play with. But little by little I've been um, touching on and sort of diving down into um, the stories of specific bookstores that one way or another I think represent the, the best of the best, the most interesting um, cases in which uh, a bookseller or a bookstore made a big impact on the literary world and on the, the commercial world of, of, of reading by the general public as well. Okay, so if we uh, pick three or four of uh, these uh, stores or sellers, uh, which would you identify as, as number one? Well, I thought we might talk about four of them okay. um, today, and do and that we might do that roughly in a kind of um, chronological or historical order, starting with the oldest. So I thought we'd start with the old corner bookstore uh, in Boston, and that we would move on then to um, uh, Scribner's bookstore in New York City, mm-hmm. in Manhattan, and similarly follow that with another uh, New York City and Manhattan bookstore, the Gotham Book Mart and finish up with um, City Lights Bookstore, um, uh, which many people know it's still uh, alive and well and functioning in San Francisco. Very good. So east to west. East to west, exactly. So the old corner bookstore. um, From where we're sitting right now here at Emerson College, um, if we were to go out on the street on this rainy day, it would take us about five minutes to walk down Washington Street to the corner of Washington and School Streets where we would find... Um, a red brick gambrel roofed um, building, um, one of, if not the oldest surviving brick building in Boston. Like mm. most major cities, there was a couple. There were a couple of major fires that 
burned down almost everything. Yeah, it's um, a, isn't it a Chipotle or something yes, like that? Yes, there's a, there's either a bagel store or a Chipotle, on, and there was for a time. I haven't been there in a while, but right. um, I think that there's also a diamond merchant in the store, okay. which some of us think is sort of um, a, a lovely <laughs> symbol about what used to be in the store, which is you know, great um, diamonds of books. Yeah, there's, so, a, there's a plaque too, of course. Yes, yeah. because the building is now uh, protected his, uh, as an historic landmark, yeah. and there actually is, as of just this past uh, summer in uh, 2019, there's some movement here in the city of Boston to try to recapture the interior space mm. and turn it into a literary museum. It's a contested idea because of who owns the building and, and mm. what their vested interests are in terms of uh, revenue-producing retail businesses. I know that the area has been designated as a kind of a literary area, right? Well, yeah. This whole area of downtown Boston where we are right now, um, is, I think they're calling it the literary and cultural district. It's very rich because of the fact that in the beginnings of American literature, mm. Boston was um, the most important place for uh, most of the 19th century. And when you get toward the end of for the publishing. 19th century yeah. for publishing, yeah. the Atlantic Monthly magazine was here until just mm. 10 or 12 years ago. It's now in Washington. But for most of the 19th century, mm. the most important publishers were here, and that also meant that many of the prominent writers either lived here or came to be here for a while when they were working with their publishers. That all changed. Um, everything moved to Philadelphia for um, uh, some time toward the late stages of the 19th century, and then rapidly uh, New York City took over and has never looked back yeah. in terms of being the, the, the real center of the publishing universe in the United States, although it's still a big deal here. Yeah. Houghton Mifflin Harcourt is here, Harvard University the headquarters are here? here. Well, it's hard to say. The yeah. original components of Houghton Mifflin are right down the street here yeah. on Tremont Street. And Beacon is uh, here. But the Beacon, Beacon Press, Press is here. But all of these Boston houses now have New yeah. York City offices. Yeah, yeah. They have to. Okay. So the old corner bookstore was um, a hub of activity. It was um, over a 75-year period or so, roughly the let's say the middle decades of the 19th century, it was the place in which many of America's soon-to-be prominent writers, so that would be the Nathaniel Hawthorne's, the Ralph Waldo Emerson's, mm -hmm. and so forth, came to recognize the fact that there was a need for a new, definitively American voice in literature, rather than simply an imitative voice that, that tried to sound like Thackeray or somebody Dickens, from yeah. Dickens, somebody from, from, the, from uh, Great Britain. Because um, in the early days of the American Republic, most of the publishing that happened uh, in North America was essentially reprinting books that had, that had come from the continent in translation or had come from Great Britain. Without paying copyright, of course. Well, copyright as we know it didn't exist yet, yeah. and the notion of paying um, uh, royalties uh, uh, comes along only in the third quarter of the 19th century. So what, what did they do? They sort of, huh, what was this? Was this a, a, an actual physical bookstore and they used to oh, yeah. hang out there? And yeah, it was, hang out is exactly the right word. Um, the, smoke the, their the, pipes. The two principals who ran the old corner bookstore were Ticknor and Fields. Ticknor was the, the cautious and conservative businessman who kept things running and made sure that they didn't go out of business. Mm. Um, James T. Fields, who was not a university-educated guy, had come up as a clerk in the store, but he just seemed to have those instincts that one needs to figure out what's going to be hot next, right? right. And he uh, oftentimes was the, the sponsor, in effect, 
of, of new and upcoming writers. So he befriended Nathaniel Hawthorne before mm -hmm. Hawthorne had made any big money at all. Mm -hmm. He um, was mm -hmm. um, close with, with, with Emerson. And the story that I tell in, 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 in my essay about the Old Corner Bookstore concerns the fact that this bookstore became um, the first publisher of Henry David Thoreau's famous book, Walden. Now, Thoreau, as many people know, um, was a brilliant guy, but also a cantankerous guy, and a, we'd call him an oddball today. Mm -hmm. um, brilliant, but strange. Mm -hmm. um, they often go together. Yeah. Yes. Um, not much in terms of, of um, sociability. Um, he preferred intimate conversation with a, one or two good friends, and he certainly loved solitude even more than that. So <laughs> he had previously published a book called A Week on the Concord and Merrimack Rivers, which was a canoe trip that he took with, a, with his brother, I think. And nobody knew how to categorize the book. Was it memoir? Was it natural history? Was it a travel log? Was it a philosophical treatise? What the heck was it? Mm. It didn't fit any genre. The book, of course, sold very weakly, and so the idea of selling his next book was even more difficult. All the publishers he talked to were skeptical, if not outright negative about it. What we should uh, mention, of course, is that booksellers were the primary publishers of yes, the day. Yes, yes. Uh, that's why you're talking about this, right? That's right. Yeah. Um, and, they, and, and in many cases, they were, um, they were the printers as well. Right. Um, but not, that was not the case with the Old Corner Bookstore. They were never a printing house, but they were publishers as well as booksellers. So Tickner and Fields, um, um, perhaps against their own best judgment or instincts, decided finally, after a four or five year long negotiation with uh, Henry David Thoreau, they decided to go ahead and publish Walden, which is, as, as I'm sure many of your listeners know, is one of the oddest books in the whole history of American literature. Again, it raises this question of, well, what the heck is it? Yeah. Philosophical treatise, memoir, mm -hmm. natural history. Self-help. Self-help, <laughs> um, political um, tirade, what, what is it? And the answer, yeah. of course, yes, it's all <laughs> of those things. Right. It's also an odd kind of fiction. So they, so they put it in every single section in the bookstore then? Well, I don't know whether they did that, but um, uh, they, they cut a deal which would be familiar to many authors today, which was to say, listen, Mr. Thoreau, um, you do come to us with the enthusiastic sponsorship of your mentor, um, Ralph Waldo Emerson, who by this time in 1854 was a famous and, and influential um, uh, preacher and philosopher mm. and, and essayist and lecturer. So you come with that sponsorship, but your previous book sold miserably, and we don't know what the heck to make of this new one. So we want you to share the risk with us. So mm. this begins to sound suspiciously like self-publishing deals of today. Right? Yeah, yeah. And that is what happened. Um, Thoreau had to invest money of his own to help defray the cost of the printing it turned out, of course, that in the first years of uh, that book's life, not many people read it, and it was really only after Thoreau died that it was recognized as uh, a remarkable book. And it's turned out to be probably the most translated book of all the American books from the 19th century. It's in many, many languages, still in print in millions of copies all around the world. Now embraced, of course, by environmentalists and and people interested in uh, the relationship between spirituality and environmentalism. Sounds a bit like uh, Moby Dick. Yeah. yeah he had yeah. to self-publish, and, and, and it wasn't very popular. Yeah, Melville didn't, didn't dies very as, well. a, as, a, as, a, as a, he dies penniless and is yeah. buried as a pauper in, in, yeah. in, a, in a public cemetery in New York City. Yeah. Well, at any rate, the old corner bookstore um, was a hangout for these writers. Okay. 
and they were sponsors of um, numerous publishing projects, including the founding of uh, the Atlantic Monthly Magazine, mm. and then this, these books from, um, from Thoreau. So did they carry books from all sorts of different publishers at that yes, location? Yes, they did, yeah. and they carried almost everything else you could imagine a bookstore would ever sell. As the mm. decades went by and management changed at the old corner bookstore, um, they did what I, I mean, I sort of, I think of it as being sort of like what you've seen Barnes & Noble struggling with in the last 15 years or so, yeah. trying to figure out, well, if the books don't produce enough revenue, what else could we sell? Yeah. And so in the book trade, we call these other things the what else. We call it sidelines nowadays. So that's the calendars. It's the stuffed animals. It's yeah. the refrigerator magnets. It's everything. Except that at the old corner bookstore, they had um, scientific instruments. Um, they yeah. had medical books. They became uh, the ticket agency for entertainment events in, in Boston. They were extremely entrepreneurial and inventive <laughs> in order to support their literary habit. So when eventually um, in the 1860s and 70s, I believe, when Tickner and Fields were aging themselves and ready to retire and so forth, the next step in the evolution of the bookstore was that, of course, they were gone and um, and Ticknor moved on to uh, what to a publishing company that was called Osgood, which eventually morphed into what we now call Houghton Mifflin. So there is a kind of a direct line then. Absolutely, oh, absolutely. Okay. You can do a family um, uh, tree and see all the way from the origins of the old corner bookstore to what's happening at Houghton Mifflin Harcourt right here in Boston mm -hmm. today. Cool. Um, <laughs> so. The high watermark for the old corner bookstore was the 1850s and 60s, and by the end of the third quarter in the 19th century, it was um, less prominent and, and less influential. Mm. But I should say, before we move on to anything else, that at, at that high watermark in the 1840s and 50s and 60s, mm. if, if we had taken a walk on Washington Street to where the old corner bookstore building still stands, and if we'd walked up and down that street and School Street, and if we'd walked from the old corner bookstore to the old State House, yeah. which is still there, um, we would have passed by the windows of 30 to 40 other booksellers. Wow. Each one of them publishers? I don't think they were all publishers. No. But many of them were importers of books, mostly, yeah. again, from the UK. Mm. But they were um, intensely competitive, and they were all part of this cultural effort to find... Um, an American voice. And so it really, of course, isn't until we, we get a Hawthorne and an Emerson and a Thoreau and a Melville and then eventually a Mark Twain that the question is answered. And of course, we get a Walt Whitman, which becomes the quintessential American voice in the mid to late 19th century. Mm. But on the run up to that period of time, um, the question of, well, what is American literature was largely answerable by saying, well, it's a mirror of British literature. And mm. these booksellers play an important role in that transition of a young nation finding its own, finding its own voice. Isn't that interesting? In order for the, these great voices to come to the fore, there is this environment that, uh, that is encouraging that seems to have helped birth this. 
I think environment's a good word for it. Um, you, you have to have, imagine it as a sort of petri dish, right? Mm. You have to have yeah. the right culture. Yeah. culture in there, or otherwise um, things don't flourish. Um, and particularly because of what you mentioned earlier, there was no royalty system. I mean, how would authors get paid, right? Yeah. They either had to have patrons who sponsored them, or they had to come from wealthy families themselves, or they had to take absurd risks. So those problems were a, a major hurdle for American literature to get to get over. And the way they got over it, of course, was by establishing both publishing companies dedicated to American writing and booksellers dedicated to selling American writing. Mm. But it took the better part of a century to, to make that happen. Um, mm. so, okay. so we shuffle on down to the Big Apple. Go to the Big Apple, and um, here we are on Fifth Avenue. Upper Fifth Avenue in Manhattan, and we're going to visit the Scribner's bookstore. Now, Scribner's was, um, by the time I plunge into the story in 1989, Scribner's as a publishing company was already 150 years old, which is ancient by American standards. The although, uh, sorry, although, you know, how, uh, Houghton Mifflin... Harper's is, I mean, a long, long standing as well. It, it, it's not unusual for American publishing houses to have have a long storied history. No, no, it isn't unusual, but of course, compared to French houses, German houses, British houses, of that's what I meant by <laughs> oh, saying. Sure, okay. Um, yeah, okay. So, um, and Scribner's was certainly in the 1920s when they really hit their stride, mm. Scribner's was what Random House is today. They were the Random House of their time. So before I, I tell you about the Scribner's bookstore, when I start writing about it in, at, at its nearly closing day in mm. 1989, let's mm. go backwards in time to the 1920s for just a moment. Like the other American publishing houses, Scribner's had made a lot of money by importing authors from overseas. Mm. But after World War One, almost immediately after World War One, uh, a new generation and a new breed of ambitious editors or editor wannabes start to sort of percolate upwards. Is that what happens with percolation? I think sure. um, um, through the um, uh, the Scribner's um, uh, business offices. And one of those young editors who's actually working in advertising is a young um, a guy named Maxwell Perkins. And Maxwell Perkins had graduated from Harvard. He had read literature at Harvard. He was um, steeped in, in the European and English tradition of, of writing. But as a young buck in New York City in the 1920s, he had a different agenda altogether. He was interested in new voices from the American scene. And he knew that the only way he could establish himself as a successful editor was to come up with something that would sell like hotcakes right away. And he had a heck of a time. It took him several years before he could convince the old fogies who were running Scribner's, mm -hmm. most of whom were indeed old men, for whom Thackeray or Somerset Mom or somebody like that represented the best of English literature. It took him several years before they would give him a chance to acquire and effectively publish something new. Well, mm -hmm. of course, what he got was F. Scott Fitzgerald's This Side of Paradise, which took off like a rocket ship. And he subsequently um, had all the rest of Fitzgerald. He had, um, following on Fitzgerald's heels, he had Ernest Hemingway. Yeah. 
He had um, uh, Thomas Wolfe, who nobody reads today, but Thomas Wolfe was um, another huge success for, for, for Scribner's in, in those days. In just, just a few years ago, there was a Hollywood feature film about Maxwell Perkins. The film is called Genius, and it's based on the National Book Award-winning biography of Maxwell Perkins by Scott, Scott Berg. Berg. Yeah. So um, I highly recommend that to your, your, your listeners. So there is Scribner's, 1920s. It's the Random House of, of, of its day. It's on a, uh, it's on a roll. Um, and for quite some time, the next 30 years or more, um, the Scribner's Publishing House is at the absolute epicenter of American publishing. They uh, had several imprints. They owned several magazines, including Scribner's... Monthly, I believe it was, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a literary magazine similar to what you would find in the New Yorker or the Atlantic today. Yeah, yeah, just to basically kind of scour right. uh, the land for all the, the, the young new talent. That's right. right. They had a small chain of bookstores, five or six of them. Mm-hmm. Um, but Mostly then, in New York or the big cities? New or? York or the big cities, yeah. yeah. I don't, I don't, that's a good question. I don't think they made it as far as Chicago or the West Coast. Okay. But you have to think, remember, you know, we're talking about the middle of the 20th century, American publishing has not yet spread to San Francisco mm. or, or Seattle or East Coast or, yeah. or L.A. So part of what the Scribners did with their rather substantial revenues was that they indulged themselves in um, having their offices on Fifth Avenue. And through a very um, uh, sweet little uh, coincidence, Charles Scribner II, I think, who was the son of the founder, Charles Scribner I, Charles Scribner II had as a brother-in-law an architect named Ernest Flagg. He was an American, and Ernest Flagg had trained at the Ecole des Beaux-Arts in Paris, and he came back to America and eventually um, became the architect of a number of prominent buildings, some of which are in Annapolis, Maryland, at the U.S. Naval Academy, one of which is in Washington. I think it's the Corcoran Gallery of Art in Washington. But in New York City, the most important building he designed was the Scribner's Building um, on Upper Fifth Avenue. Is that still with us? The building is there, but my essay is about the story of the demise of Scribner's and the loss of this bookstore. So the moment that I focused on in my essay was 1989, when literally across the street from Scribner's, a new upstart called Barnes & Noble had recently opened, and Barnes & Noble had a completely different business model. Their idea was that whatever you sell, we're going to discount it dramatically. So whatever the list price is on the book, at Barnes & Noble you'd walk in and automatically, even if it wasn't a special sale or it wasn't the Christmas holiday season, everything would be 20% off or 30% off the list price. So did they pressure the publishers to give them the books for less money, or did they take less of a profit? Well, to use a phrase that's in the news Right now, the quid pro quo was um, volume in exchange for discount. There discounts. was no <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, what, what did you say? <laughs> it was volume in exchange for, for, for discounts. Yeah, exactly. So, the, the more you sell, the better the deal? Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and, of course, the Barnes & Noble business model, which has come back to haunt them in yeah. recent years, was that um, you would expand into the suburbs, to the suburban shopping malls, Mm. and spread all across America, which they did. Mm -hmm. Of course, they overexpanded, which is why they got into so much trouble. But But they also, another side comment on that is that they 
centralized all their purchasing yeah. too and yeah. ignored the local markets. Yeah. And and that well we'll do just a quick digression on that. You know as you as as I think you know of course Barnes and Noble came close to uh, driving themselves out of business recently. They made a disastrous decision to try to compete in the ebook reader market and, and invented this thing Nook. called the Nook, yeah. which nobody wants. Mm. And they had they still haven't gotten rid of it, but they poured way too much money into the development of that thing. Um, and so just recently, within the last few months, a hedge fund based, I think, here in the States and in the UK, same hedge fund that owns a controlling interest in Waterstones, the bookstore chain in the UK, mm-hmm. has purchased a controlling interest in Barnes & Noble, thank goodness. Well, you can listen to the CEO on the bibliophile. Yeah. This yeah. is Mr. James Daunt. Daunt, yes. Yeah. yeah. Who himself is a, a wonderful bookseller yeah. with his own little chain of travel books. Uh, well, I course. will, because I have I, I have a lot of respect for what he's done I thus do far. Yeah. So I think hmm. uh, we're going to have Barnes & Noble for some time to come, mm-hmm. thank Let's goodness. So. so at any rate, across the street, 1989, from Scribner's Bookstore, um, is the new Barnes & Noble. Mm-hmm. And the windows in Barnes & Noble say, discount, discount, discount. But in the mindset of the Scribner's Bookstore managers and the, and the Scribner's publishers, the idea of discounting books was just anathema. Mm-hmm. They had never thought of it. When they did hear about it, they thought it was a ridiculous business model. It would never work. So clearly they had blinders on and did not see the future coming at all. Furthermore, what they had done, of course, is to build themselves one heck of a beautiful bookstore. So they had this mm-hmm. gorgeous space with this wrought iron two-story front door window, uh, a two-story high front room, which had a gallery or mezzanine level, which um, uh, stocked rare books and, and other um, expensive items. So they did, sorry, they did new and used and antiquarian? Yeah, but used only at the high end. Yeah, okay. Those are not cheap paperbacks. Right. And they had service, service at a super high level. So mm. the salespeople at Scribner's would be likely to remember you or me, and they mm. would remember what your taste is as opposed to my taste, mm. so that when you drift into the bookstore the next time for 30 minutes of browsing, your salesperson would approach you and say, by the way, Nigel, um, you know, the new novel from Ernest Hemingway is here, and we mm. know you really like Hemingway. This sounds a bit like Bowman's today. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that, of course, is also the exact opposite of the business model that Barnes & Noble adopted, <laughs> right. where it's hard to even find someone who can point you <laughs> to right. where you would find Ernest Hemingway on the <laughs> Or even know who Ernest Hemingway right. is. Yeah. So, um, so you had two completely different mindsets and different business models. And by this time in the 1980s, the Scribner's publishing company had also essentially lost control of itself for lack of sufficient capitalization. And they were on the pathway to becoming an imprint of Macmillan, which in turn became an imprint of somebody else. And so Scrivener's has significant, it's still with us, mm. but it has receded moment, very yeah. much into the, into the background. Right, right. right. So when Scrivener's lost mm. the bookstore itself, they just literally couldn't afford to keep it going. The building needed repairs and they didn't have the money for that. What happened then was a big squabble in New York City about what should happen next in this space. You mean in terms of the keeping it as, yeah. as it was? Yeah. yeah, because as you know... So this would be what, a historical society, for example? Yeah. there was a New York City Landmarks Preservation Committee or something like that, an agency of city government. There, were, um, there was the National Trust for Historic Preservation. 
and, and including a lot of um, other people in the literary community who loved the place mm -hmm. and thought it was a beautiful bookstore, one of the most beautiful in the world, actually, who were worried that it would be turned into something terrible, which, in fact, is what happened, because it was sold um, eventually to um, the Rizzoli um, Publishing Empire from Italy, which had until not long ago, another gorgeous bookstore yeah. in New York City. Yeah. And well, they moved. I mean, their stores isn't that. The new one's pretty nice, too. I haven't it? been to the new I, one. I, I, I used either. to go to the one on 57th Street because yeah. I yeah. worked on 57th Street. But uh, Rizzoli also apparently found that they could not um, figure out a business model that would make this Fifth Avenue bookstore work. It was a very big space, much bigger uh. than most bookstores that you see today. And they didn't have the money to, to maintain the building and so forth. So what happened was that the Benetton Clothing Company mm. swooped in as a potential developer. And then after Benetton was there for a while, whoever owns the Sephora Cosmetics Company swooped mm. in and it became a kind of cosmetics um, store. Now, have they kept all the trappings? And the well, some. Okay. some. Okay. Thank goodness the front of the facade of the store yeah. has been preserved. Okay. So you can still see the Scribner's medallion. And the cool thing is, I'll just make, maybe make this the last thing to say about it before yeah. we move on. Um, if you picture the front, front of the store, big wrought iron frames around the plate glass windows. Above the the, the wrought iron framing, you have the medallion of the store, which is a, uh, it's like Aladdin's lamp with the light always burning and the flame always burning. And the next step up, Ernest Flagg, the architect, in working in conjunction with his publishing relatives and friends, had decided that a great bookstore must pay homage to the great printers of the past because without printing, there is no publishing. There's no book. There's no books. So you had four stone medallions, Aldous Manticus, Benjamin Franklin is up there, mm. William Caxton is up there, and I've drawn a blank on the fourth one right now. But the point Pastorally, is, yeah. maybe, but, but these were clear representations of the fact that this bookstore and this publishing house are rooted in history. We wouldn't be here without the history. So yeah. compared to the Barnes & Noble thing across the street, which was basically turning its back on bookselling history, yeah, doing yeah. something new. Mm. Scribner's represented a robust... Well, treating, treating the book as a, just a plain commodity like potatoes. Yeah. Sorry, I interrupted you. So, so Scribner's, the building is still there, but of course there's no books in the store anymore. You have to sort of go to the front of the store and genuflect and then move on. <laughs> well, wouldn't it be nice if some... Some deep-pocketed bookseller yes, decided yeah. to go back into that space. It would be nice. Yeah, it, It's the kind of thing that if Jeffrey Bezos at Amazon really had his principles in the right place, he yeah. would do it because yeah. he could afford it. That would be pocket change for him. Yeah. You know, yeah. So. Okay, so we're still in New York. We're still in New York. Different um, era, though, is it? Yep. Uh, we're still in Slightly. midtown Manhattan, yeah. which is to say we're in the... The 40s and 50s, you know, 40th Street, 50th Street. Yeah. Um, and we're going to the Gotham Book Mart. So the Gotham Book Mart is a completely different story. Not connected to a big publishing house. Not owned by um, uh, wealthy proprietors. It, it was owned largely by one woman for a long run, a woman named um, Frances Stelloff. And she was, uh, oddly enough, uh, not a university-educated person. She was not someone with deep pockets, but she seemed to have a special, what, what do they call it, a sixth sixth sense for what was new and avant-garde and would eventually um, be embraced uh, as part of um, the literary canon. So 
<clears throat> in her years of running the, um, the Gotham Book Mart from the 1920s to the 1960s, Oh, sorry, she she didn't have much money, but she set up a little shop. Set up a little end. shop, which and she had a good eye, a good eye and a good ear, and she had uh, the instincts of an empresario. She threw a lot of parties. The par people who came to the parties were avant-garde writers, and the publishers of the what were called the little magazines. These were literary magazines with small circulation but big mm. impact. Probably the most important of which was called Transition. Okay. And as the name suggests, that's about things changing. Well, the little magazine itself brought in uh, Ulysses, James Joyce's yeah. Ulysses. Well, and of course what happens at the Gotham Book Mart is that that store, the physical space, becomes the meeting place for the Joyce Society in the United States. Um, so what I decided to do in this essay was to focus on a party that she threw in the 1960s when she uh, had been a bookseller for quite a long time mm -hmm. and had become a kind of handmaiden to um, the arrival on the scene of a great many modernist writers who at the beginning of their careers were thought of as, as so far out on the fringe that, that nobody even understood them. So the easiest example to mention would be T.S. Eliot. The 1920s, Eliot, as you know, of course, is an American from St. Louis who moves to Great Britain, becomes more British than the British, adopts the British accent and the costume and the whole nine yards, right. um, and looks like, and in some respects is, politically, a bit of an arch-conservative. Mm. But at night, at home, after he goes home from his day, his day job in a bank, he's writing um, poetry that's going to blow the lid off um, English language poetry mm. worldwide. Aided by another American over the, in Europe. Uh, an equally crazy guy yeah, named yeah. Ezra Pound. So, Who was an incredible connector, wasn't he? Yeah. He yeah. was connected to so many of these uh, authors. Well, and Ezra Pound, although he eventually ends up um, you know, accused of, of treason because mm. he sympathized with Mussolini and the fascists during World War II. And did radio broadcasts. Yeah, he did a lot and, of yeah. awful things. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but in the 1920s, he becomes um, a friend of T.S. Eliot, but more importantly, he becomes his editor. And Eliot sends him the manuscript for a long, unwieldy, um, almost incomprehensible poem called The Wasteland. And I've got that edition where you see all the... The markups, yeah, yeah. 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 And, and Ezra Pound's genius at, at, at that point was to say, you need to say less and let the fragments remain on the page, and your reader's job is to either connect the fragments or not. Yeah. But the point is, fragmentation and discontinuity and discombobulation essentially are the themes of this poem, mm. and so let's push it in that direction. Yeah. So, at any rate, that kind of writing, which challenged all the conventional norms, rhyme, meter, coherence, and so forth, that kind of writing is exactly what um, the modern or modernists were all about. And Francis Stelhoff at the Gotham Book Mart in New York was their champion. So by the time we got to um, the early 60s, she was ready to um, have a celebratory um, review of what the bookstore had done for many years. So she decided to throw a party and invite all the modernists she could get to the party, which is authors publishers, publicists, hangers-on of all kinds, and she decided to publish a catalog that would represent everything she had in the store that came out of this modernist movement in, in writing. She couldn't have listed all her books, but she, she, what, she listed all the different authors that, whose books she carried? Is that it? 
the catalog she published is called We Moderns, mm. the Gotham Bookmark 1920 to 1940. And we're looking at a copy of it right now. <coughs> yeah, I bought this on the used book market. Um, uh, it can be purchased in mint condition, signed by Francis Stella for several hundred dollars, mm. which is very rare for any catalog. Or you can buy the uh, sort of falling apart version of it that I have, which I bought for fifty dollars. Right. It's bound. To it's spiral uh, yeah, bound. Spiral yeah. bound. Yeah. 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 In mm-hmm. in this catalog, which runs to about forty pages or so, you have um, comments by the writers about their friends, the writers, recommending authors and recommending specific books from the authors, all of which Frances Deloff had sold in her in her store. Right. So you find Ezra Pound recommending T.S. Eliot. And um, it's, it's a kind of celebration of a literary movement and a literary period that really doesn't have a parallel. It was a very rich, innovative, risk-taking time, mm. not driven by uh, commercial interest. No, they certainly didn't sell a lot, did they, at the no, time? they didn't. No. So, Francis mm. Deloff hung in there. And again, for a long this time. is a place where they hung out. They yeah yeah all the, yeah. The, she had um, she had as as many um, smaller buildings in New York City. You see this in Boston too, as many of them do. She had a little garden out in the back. With so chairs and uh, yeah, and so on summer evenings when they'd throw a party, it, the bookstore space was the party room, but so was the garden in the back. And Frances Stelloff lived on the third floor up above the bookstore. It was her whole life. Mm. And where life. where is this? This was on um, forty. Let me get the correct um, address for you here. And what is it now? Just a, a private residence? Or? Um, well, I'll tell you that in one second. So, um, fifty one West Forty Seventh Street. Okay. And, and and for um, folks who don't know Manhattan well, uh, an easy way to imagine where you are is this: if you were at the Gotham Bookmark, mark at that address, fifty one West Forty Seventh Street. You are um, a few blocks south of Central Park. Okay. You are a few blocks north of the New York Public Library and Grand Central Station. Mm-hmm. You are a couple of blocks away from St. Patrick, Patrick's Cathedral. You are just a few blocks away from Rockefeller Center. In other words, you're at the hub. You're at the absolute um, nexus. Uh, and, and, of course, you're only a few blocks away from Times Square, which means that you're in, that's the theater mm-hmm. district. So that um, mm-hmm. selling books that had to do with the theater was an also important thing at this bookstore. And what is it today? You're, you're it's not gone. sure? It's gone. They, they well, the building is there. No, I don't think the building's been demolished, but the bookstore moved right. um, after Frances Stelloff retired, and she, she lived until she was 99 or 100. The store as a business was sold to Andreas Brown, who um, had to move it, I think, because of rent issues. Okay. And he moved in the same neighborhood to a, a very classy, um, beautiful um, uh, location with great old you know, shelving and a very luxurious physical setup. But by that time, the revenue was simply not enough to sustain whatever he was paying in terms of rent or mortgage. And so Andreas Brown basically lost it within a few years. And the last time I walked by it, there were um, for rent signs in the window of the bookstore while some of these great old books were still on display in the window. That must have been a few years ago. Though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was back in the... Uh, early 2000s so um, so um, it slipped um, out of control and you can imagine that 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 this happened largely because as a small literary um, bookstore without um, a very rich patron to support it 
against the huge discounting and then the internet and then the availability of cheap downloadable editions of everything, it's very hard to imagine how this kind of store could, could have survived. Great story, though. Thank you. So then we jump on the plane and head out to the West Coast. Where I had a delicious and um, valuable experience, which I'm very grateful for. I was able to spend an afternoon with Lawrence Ferlinghetti. Mm. Um, Still the, alive? Oh, yes. Um, and, and he must be getting close to 100, 100. himself. Yeah. Yeah. So Lawrence Ferlinghetti, of course, is one of the... Founders is perhaps the wrong word. He's one of the initiators of what we think of as the beat generation mm -hmm. in the 1950s. And um, he had been a soldier in World War II. He had either before the war or shortly after the war uh, gone off to graduate school and uh, had finished a degree in comparative literature at the Sorbonne. So he used to hang out at Shakespeare and Company. Yes, he did. Yeah, yeah. And he knew uh, George Whitman, mm -hmm. the, um, uh, the founder of the second Shakespeare and Company, yeah. not the original Sylvia Beach, who had started it in the 1920s. So when Ferlinghetti came back to the States from Paris, he was at loose ends, wasn't quite sure what he wanted to do, but he knew he wanted to do something in the bookish world. Mm -hmm. And um, he found that for some reason or other, New York City wasn't to his liking, and even though he came from Yonkers, which is just north of New York City. And so he, like many people, went west. Many Americans went west in the sense of thinking the west represents openness and innovation and freedom and experimentation. Mm -hmm. And he was right. So he uh, lands in San Francisco, and w shortly thereafter by a random um, set of circumstances meets a guy on the street who's starting a little paperback bookstore. Now that doesn't sound very innovative to us in 2019, but paperbacks in the mid-1950s are just beginning to be what they are now. You had had two paperback episodes in the history of American publishing before we get to this moment in the 1950s. Mm. One is way back in the third quarter of the 19th century when they started publishing what were called dime novels. This is sort of low-grade, you know, westerns and romances and so forth, cheap production values, and those um, sold like hotcakes, but the idea of the paperback as a legitimate form of publishing did not catch on at that time, and the paperbacks largely went away. They came back during uh, at least, I don't know about World War I, but they came back big in a big way during World War II. Penguin kicks in in 35. That's right. Yeah, and, that's right. And I think there was a quite, a, quite a bit of contribution to the armed forces. That's the, right. The Penguin, yeah, okay. And the American publishers pick up on that Penguin model, thinking that we've got hundreds of thousands of soldiers scattered mm -hmm. all over the world during this long, long, mm -hmm. long war. Who need to... Uh, and they have a lot, a lot of downtime. Exactly, yeah. So yeah. the American publishers contribute to the war effort by producing cheap paperback editions of, of both low-grade and high-grade literature. Yeah. And after the war... Some of the publishers, particularly Simon, what becomes Simon & Schuster, and E.P. Dutton, 
um, begin to think, well, wait a minute, um, if we could work out the manufacturing elements, that is to produce a binding that won't fall apart after frequent use, mm -hmm. and if we could get book designers to design covers that would be attractive, maybe there's something in terms of a revenue stream that would work for us publishers in the paperback category mm -hmm. as opposed to the hardcover category. What about, is it Ballantine? <coughs> Ballantine's yeah. another important Big, beginner. Yeah. yeah. So at this point, in the early to mid-1950s, there's Lawrence Ferlinghetti, trying to figure out what to do with himself mm -hmm. as, a, as a budding poet in uh, San Francisco. He falls into an opportunity to invest $500 in a upstart paperback bookstore called City Lights. The name comes from the Charlie Chaplin film, meant to suggest playfulness and, and sort of being at odds with power structure. Not long after this, a couple of years later, the original partner for City Lights moves back to New York and suddenly Lawrence Ferlinghetti owns the bookstore all by himself. And he decides that what he wants to do is he wants to be a publisher as well as a bookseller. Yeah, in the, great, in the grand tradition. Right. And so now in our story about City Lights, we've looped all the way back to what we were talking about some time ago with mm -hmm. uh, the old corner bookstore mm -hmm. in, in Boston. Among the things that Ferlinghetti um, publishes in that first wave of, of activity is a f poem by uh, a guy no one had heard of, a guy from New York named Allen Ginsberg. It's a poem called Howl. So my essay plunges us into the party, yet another literary party, which is the first public reading of Howl at an art gallery in San Francisco. Ferlinghetti did not know Allen Ginsberg at that point, but he was in the audience that night. So was Jack Kerouac. So was Gary Snyder. All these people who became prominent beat generation writers. After the party at which Ginsberg read Howell and brought people to tears, Lawrence Ferlinghetti sent Allen Ginsberg a telegram. It seems rather charming these days, so we don't send telegrams anymore, but he sent him a telegram which in effect mimics um, the same letter that Ralph Waldo Emerson sent to Walt Whitman after having read um, a copy of um, Leaves of Grass in 1855, I think. And that letter to Walt Whitman from Ra Ralph Waldo Emerson said, I greet you at the beginning of a great career. Ferlinghetti adds a second line to that in his telegram to Allen Ginsberg. He says, I greet you at the beginning of a great career. When can I have the manuscript? <laughs> so one thing leads to another, and indeed um, uh, City Lights, City Lights Books becomes um, the, the, the first American publisher of Powell, oh. which in fact was published initially in the UK for reasons that have to do with what were the in obscenity laws in mm. the United States at that time. Well, there's the famous legal case. Yes. So um, Lawrence Ferlinghetti champions the book. Um, he imports um, copies from the UK publisher. They manage to slip through US customs without being challenged. But when the books land in San Francisco, city government goes after him. And so um, there is eventually um, a court case which rises up through the appellate courts in uh, the state of California. And, and eventually the judge in the, at the appellate level issues a statement which becomes a defining 
um, judicial um, uh, decision about how we will define whether something, how we will determine whether something is or isn't obscene. That, that decision rests on a previous decision that um, Bennett Cerf from Random House had managed to get in the Woolsey case that involved bringing James Joyce's Ulysses into the States. You know what's so interesting is that bookstores are central to both these stories. Mm -hmm. The other thing that's interesting is that the booksellers and the publishers are personally at risk yeah. because it wasn't just that they could have lost the inventory and the revenue from the inventory. Mm -hmm. if, you, if you were convicted of breaking these obscenity laws, it was like being a child molester or something. You were considered a danger to society and they could put you in the slammer. So there was real courage involved in this. Mm -hmm. But what Frillingetti had done, because he's a very, very smart guy, um, he had already gone to the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union. He had found professors at the University of California, Berkeley, English department. He, he had a whole team of people ready to testify about the value of Allen Ginsberg's poetry as, as social commentary. Which, in effect, is wonderful promotion for the book. Exactly. Yeah, that, that, you know, the old rule in publishing is that there's no such thing as bad publicity. But even, even you know, <laughs> the, the, the testimony of these, uh, these experts you know, can be used to pump the book. That's right. So Ginsburg's Howell, along with Ferlinghetti's own early poetry, become the foundation of a poetry series. Pocket yeah. Poets or something like that, I think. Yeah, those books are kind of square. They're, they're squarish. They? Yes, yeah. which is unusual. Well, yeah, except that they're in a category of publishing that we call chapbooks. Yeah. Um, they are saddle-stitched, meaning that they're stapled rather than glued, so they don't have a squared-off um, glue perfect bound, perfect yeah. bound yeah. binding. They're cheap to manufacture, but they're also, they work as gift items, impulse buys, mm. all kinds of stuff. Yeah, not expensive. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So anyway, this was the beginning of Florence Ferlinghetti's publishing empire and um, the bookstore. The bookstore itself, um, as I know you've been there, and I'll bet a lot of your listeners have been there too, yeah. it's a bit of a tourist site in mm -hmm, um, San is. Francisco. Yeah, there's kind of a, uh, I won't say CD, but that does come to mind, but there is a beat museum uh, close by with, uh, as I recall, a, bi a big bathtub full of books in the front end of it, and it, it, it just doesn't quite, it, I think it's privately owned, but anyway. That well, the whole, na your word seedy is perfect, and the, the neighborhood itself was pretty seedy and, and for a long time. And continues to be. And, yeah. There, you know, there were strip joints, and, and, yeah. and, and you could do a drug deal on the street, and so forth, so yeah, yeah. not, on the other hand, it's right on the that edge character. of, it's right on the Plus edge there's of there's a bar, right, the, is it the Vesuvius? Yeah, Vesuvius is right, right next, next door, door. Yeah. which is a cafe, an all yeah. sort of a late-night cafe. So that's part of what they call the North Beach section of San Francisco, heavily Italian, like the yeah. North End here in Boston, and um, uh, a great neighborhood for strolling in the evening and having, you know, cheesecake and, a, and an espresso, and so you would drop into City Lights Bookstore and browse. Now, browsing at this store is not like browsing at other bookstores. The signage in City Lights Bookstore is idiosyncratic syncratic and quirky, to put it mildly. So you have signage which is uh, which reflects the political character of the store. It's essentially anti-capitalist posture. It's pro-socialist uh, posture. And you also have in the store, which consists of several small 
weirdly shaped rooms. Yeah. It's nothing at all like a suburban shopping mall, which is a big, you know, box store with right angles everywhere. Well, you got the poetry section upstairs in the back end. Yeah. And it's a, it's a room unto itself. And right? the poetry section is really worth visiting, especially yeah. if you're a, a poetry fan, yeah. because Ferlin Getty and his bookselling managers have carefully curated this over the decades. Yeah. So you can find many, many things there that have gone out of print or are very hard to find elsewhere, and that are just they're just all these interesting juxtapositions that you wouldn't find at all in a, in a big commercial, you know, um, uh, bookstore. So the bookstore itself lives on, thank goodness. The publishing company, City Lights, also lives on. And, and when I met Lawrence Ferlinghetti, which is now, uh, I think, almost eight or nine years ago, he and his business partner, Ann Peters, who's also retired now, they were moving the whole thing in the direction of converting the bookstore and the publishing house into nonprofit corporations, which would be a way to make it possible for them to raise grant money or other kinds of philanthropic support to support them, because there's a serious concern about whether sufficient revenue can be generated continuously to keep them going you know, forever. Because mm. obviously, Ferlinghetti is not going to be with us forever. No. No. But he's a remarkable guy, and uh, he's a painter, a serious painter, poet, publisher, bookstore owner, and uh, bon vivant, um, yeah. just a wonderful, wonderful man. Yeah. And I, I guess I should say also that on the way to writing this um, essay, I wanted to include um, another thing that, that I had done some years before I went out there to meet Lawrence Ferlinghetti. When I worked in New York City at Cambridge University Press, as an acquisitions editor, one part of my beat was um, American religion, religious history, and the future of religion in America. And I said to Cambridge, hey, look, you have uh, you know, hundreds of books about the history of Christianity and the history of Judaism in, in the whole wide world, including North America, but you don't have much that has to do with the Asian religions, Buddhism and Hinduism and um, um, Islam. So I wanted to acquire some books from those traditions. And I thought, well, wouldn't it be cool to f do something about how Buddhism came to America? You and thought San Francisco. I thought San Francisco, but I also thought um, Allen Ginsberg. Right. Uh, so I found my way to Allen Ginsberg, who was at that moment teaching at the Naropa Institute, which is a very unusual um, college in Boulder, Colorado, devoted to literary arts and spirituality. So I contacted Ginsburg. He graciously um, welcomed me to, to the campus. He was quite ill at that point. He had diabetes and uh, some other ailment that made it difficult for him to move around. So I spent most of an afternoon sitting on Allen Ginsburg's bed with him, chatting about everything under the sun. And I have to say, for a guy whom I knew essentially through the voice of Howell and many other aggressive angry, wild, crazy poems, right? Ginsburg was the sweetest, gentlest, most gracious person you could ever imagine. He was just a, a, a wonderful man to spend, spend an afternoon with. So in this particular case, I had the pleasure of, of knowing both Ginsburg, knowing a meeting at least, yes, Ginsburg yeah. and Ferlin Getty. And having, well, having that wonderful uh, human connection. Yeah. Well, what about these essays? Are they uh, are, are they going to 
show up in your book in some type of way? Or Well, here's uh, the good news and the bad news. Um, the bad news is uh, that I had a contract for a book about American bookstores, contract with the University of Massachusetts Press, and um, when the recession came along, um, they canceled the contract because I had to cut back the size of their list. And by then, I had written so many of these essays that it had, you know, the, the combination of all of them, the collection of all of them, had become, you know, pretty hefty. And, and so at that point, because each of these essays has been published in one sort of um, journal or another, mostly scholarly journals, I decided to just continue with the writing of as many more stores as I wanted to do mm-hmm. and to publish them separately. Does that mean that they can't be published in a book because they've been published in these journals? No, but it does mean that, that if they were to be published in a book, somebody, hopefully the publisher and not me, <clears throat> would have to go to each of the journals and say, um, would you please grant us permission to reprint? Yeah. Because as, as you may know, some of the scholarly journals... Um, for instance, um, the City Lights bookstore essay is in a journal called Publishing Research Quarterly, published out of NYU in New York. But it's owned by the journal is owned by Springer, the big um, German textbook and reference book publisher. Yeah. So Springer has done a million and one good things, but they are tough as nails in terms of controlling content. So when one publishes even one essay in their journal, mm-hmm. as author, you have to sign over your copyright to them. And then to get permission to bring it back out and use it elsewhere, you have to pay up. So whether these things will all be collected at some point or not, I I don't know. If anyone's listening out there in publishing land who takes an interest in this, call me and we can talk. But at the moment, I actually don't have a new plan about how to pull them all together. Okay. And how many more are we looking at right now? Well, um, there are about... 20 of them all together. Isn't that? We know what? I mean, I don't, uh, I, I get down to Boston every six months or so. So maybe we could, we could talk about doing another sure. session in another uh, four stores. I would be happy to. That would be terrific. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you so much for this uh, fascinating uh, conversation and uh, journey across Well, thank you, uh, Nigel. It's, it's, a, it's a pleasure to, to talk with a, a, a bibliophile about these things. Thank you. <laughs> I've been uh, speaking with David Emblidge, who is a professor at Emerson College in Boston, Massachusetts. Thanks again. Thank you. Uh, That was really fun.